0: This morning we'll be in Luke chapter twelve, verses one through twelve. And as you are turning, if you have your Bible with you or using one, in the if you're turning there this morning. I was thinking about when I was a little boy. Kids, I don't know if you have places like this in your house, but when I was a little boy, from the time I can remember until I was just leaving fifth grade, every house that we lived in had a special place that I could go to get away. I had a little special room in every house that we lived in that I could get away to. When we uh, lived in uh, the old farmhouse in Beaver, uh, we called it my cubbyhole, right? It was an old hall closet that the Uh, We had redesigned, my parents had redesigned the layout of the upstairs and had closed off the hall part of the closet, but there was a little access door from my room into the closet. And so that became my little cubby hole, kind of like a hobbit hole, right? You like open the door and you you kind of get in and underneath it opens up into this, you know, what I thought was a vast, expansive room at the time. And then when we moved uh, to our first house in Kansas, I had a little, there was a little room in the basement. Um sounds kind of creepy, but it wasn't. It was a very light and airy and open basement, and so I'd go down there, and I would have my little space, and then we moved to another house uh, in the same town of, of Sterling, and there was this space under our stairs that had a little door, kind of like my room back in Beaver, and it was carpeted, and uh, you'd go in there. It's kind of like, you know, probably a lot nicer than Harry Potter's little room under his stair- under the stairs, but I'd go in there, my brothers and sisters and I, you know, if I could keep them out, I'd keep them out, but sometimes I had to let them in. And we'd go in there, I'd go in there and have this little place all to myself. So it was these inner rooms in our houses and they were places that I'd like to go and get away, to be myself, be by myself and to do, quote, secret things. And when I was in those places, I would sometimes feel like I was all alone, like nobody else was around, even though, There were other people, obviously, in the house. That no one could find me, even though, obviously, everyone knew where I was. And no one knew what I was doing. I felt safe. This morning, Jesus is going to use these kinds of places in our houses as an illustration about what our lives can sometimes be like. That just like these rooms where we can escape and feel kind of safe, Sometimes we, when we escape to those rooms, we can do and say, quote, secret things that aren't good for us and aren't good for others. And even though we think they are secret, that no one will find out, the things that we try to hide from others in our lives will eventually be known. And so no matter how good the outside looks, it's what's on the inside that is of most importance. Our lives need to be first and foremost Focused and formed from the inside on the heart, which will then lead to an outside that is not one of hypocrisy but of gospel reality. So let's re- read Luke 12, verses 1 through 12. In the meantime, when so many thousands of the people had gathered together that they were trampling one another, he began to say to his disciples, Beware of the leaven of the Pharisees, which is hypocrisy. Nothing is covered up that will not be revealed or hidden, that will not be known. Therefore, whatever you have said in the dark shall be heard in the light. And what you have whispered in private rooms shall be proclaimed on the housetops. I tell you, my friends, do not fear those who kill the body. And after that, have nothing more that they can do. But I will warn you whom to fear. Fear him who, after he is killed, has authority to cast into hell. Yes, I tell you, fear him. Are not five sparrows sold for two pennies? And not one of them is forgotten before God. Why even the hairs of your head are all numbered? Fear not. You are of more value than many sparrows. in that very hour, what you ought to say. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you for your word. Lord, we pray that you would give us eyes to see and ears to hear. Lord, we pray that you would uh, conform us to your word today. Not merely be transformed, but conformed to it. We pray all this in your name. Amen. So we continue our series in the Gospel of Luke called Certainty in Christ. And last week, Pastor Alex preached from the last section of chapter 11, and this is where Jesus cites his woes to the Pharisees. And we saw that because God has loved us and purified us through Jesus' blood, we can truly glorify him. And glorifying God looks like this, according to Jesus, when we do justice, when we humble ourselves, and we proclaim the truth of God. And this week, we pick up with Jesus taking his interaction with the Pharisees and using it as an illustration for his disciples. So he's no longer talking to the Pharisees. He's in this great crowd, but he is speaking specifically to his disciples. And as he's speaking to his disciples, the question that comes up in, or should come up in our minds, is... Who or what do we fear? Who or what do we fear? And it's interesting. Jesus tells us who to fear. What he really is pointing out is that we are to fear not. That we are not to fear. And that's our main point. Fear not, live from the inside out. Fear not, live from the inside out. And we're going to look at what Living outside in or inside out is all about. I'm a poet and I didn't even know it. Um, first, the outside in, because Jesus first uses the Pharisees to explain to us what it's like to live from the outside in. And Pastor Alex talked about this a little bit last week about you know looking good on the outside, about what it is that the Pharisees were doing to to make themselves look good, even though they may have been you know. Uh, grumpy about what they were required to do, but they were looking good. They were the ones who had it figured out and all together. But as we think about the outside in, how do we think about that? I mean, and what Jesus kind of looking at is he's like, don't be like the Pharisees. What is he saying? Well, the Pharisees, as we heard last week, they, and they kind of were, as Pastor Alex, but the policemen. <laughs> right? And they put a lot of pressure on people to live out the law, not just the law that God had given, but the law that had been expanded. They'd put pressure on people to live this out in the way that they had interpreted it. Well, peer pressure comes in all forms and fashions, right? In every culture, in every place, both in the church and outside the church. And that's really what the Pharisees were doing. There was this pressure, this peer pressure of these highly religious that were pressuring folks to live in a certain way from the outside in. And the power of those who seek conformity is very strong. It's very strong in our lives, Persecution methods can be strong, controlling, and painful. The book of Acts talks about beatings and floggings and stonings. Economic pressure can sometimes be applied, along with social ostracism. The pressures to conform are great. I remember when I was a little boy in Kansas, I had a friend who was a huge Cowboys fan. And he was my best friend, and I, I really looked up to him and liked him. And a couple other friends were Cowboys fans. And I didn't like the Cowboys. But I felt like I had to be a Cowboys fan because my friends were Cowboys fans. And they would you know, talk about the Cowboys all the time. And they would pressure me to be, to be this Cowboys fan. And so I pretended to be a Cowboys fan. It was awful. <laughs> Sorry, Tom. <laughs> I spent at least a year pretending to be a Cowboys fan, and having parents who grew up in Western PA and myself born from, That was—I'm sure—that was really hard for them. But we are pressured to conform. We are pressured to conform to what those around us are saying is the way to live. And that can be both from our culture outside the church, but can also be incredibly powerful inside the church. Right? I mean, you know, we give the Pharisees a hard time. Jesus gave them a hard time. But the Pharisees were very religious. (laughs) They were seeking to do what they thought was what God wanted them to do. And so Jesus warns us to be on guard against the yeast of the Pharisees. This symbol of corruption in, in, what, in Jesus' teaching and other parts of Scripture as well, in Paul's teaching in the Old Testament. This, the Pharisees' hypocrisy has been discussed back in... With, uh, in later part of chapter eleven that Pastor Alex looked at, and Jesus saying that the desire to impress can lead to this double life, and the way of the Pharisees is not the way of Jesus' disciples. This this leaven, this yeast that can build up and to create, try to create, and, and bubbles up from um, from inside is also what we can try to look like. On the outside. Both the inside and the outside can both be those things which Jesus is saying do not live in this way. We may divide our activities into public and private, visible and unseen, but there is no division, Jesus is saying, in God's vision. Right? We can build up these walls to help people. Uh, to protect us, to protect our psyche, rationalize our behavior, to keep others out from knowing what is on the inside, making the outside look good. But just like it will be known, just like it will come into the light, just like yeast that continues to build and build and build, if there is no release, will eventually explode. What we try to do on the outside, what we try to look like on the outside will not fix the inside. Outside in is not how Jesus works, He works from the inside out. And he tells us how that works. He says to not fear those who are on the outside, those who are seeking you to conform to how they are believe even so strongly what it should look like to follow God. But to fear God, not fear them, but to fear God, and, and this fear of God is not a fear of terror, right? When Jesus is talking about the fear of God, it is not this this unavoidable um, terror? It's not horror. It is awe. It is wonder. It is a understanding that God in His grace and mercy is so much greater, so much powerful, more powerful than we could ever hope or imagine. To have a proper fear of God is to know who He is, and to know who we are, that we are subject to His Authority to his kingship in our lives. And given this pressure to do one thing in public and another in private, Jesus reminds the disciples that they should fear God. They should have this proper fear of God. They should not fear those who kill the body, but the one who has the power of authority to do to control eternity, or as Jesus puts it, to throw into hell, right? Human beings' power over life is limited, right? He's, Jesus is saying, even though we look at it and be like, well, death, that's pretty bad, <laughs> right? <laughs> Wait, Jesus, yeah, I get it, okay? You're saying that, you know, not fear these, these people on the outside, but hey, you know, what if they do kill me? And Jesus is saying, right, yes, that's bad, but that's all they can do. And you're like, well, that's, wait, that's death. But Jesus is reminding us that their power is limited. That's where it ends, right? He, he says um, in, in verse uh, uh, four, I tell you, my friends, do not fear those who kill the body and after that have nothing more they can do. That is the end of the fear that they can instill in us. Other human beings' power over life is limited. That life that counts is the life of eternity starting now, the life to come. We should not fear rejection or even martyrdom, Jesus says, because the end of this life is not the end. The end of this life does seem ultimate It seems like the ultimate disaster, and we commonly fear it. But Jesus points out that people who kill can do no more. Death is their ultimate achievement. Their power extends no further, and we should not fear those whose power is so limited. Rather, rightly fear the God whose authority extends beyond physical death. The one who holds eternity in his hand. And Jesus assures us of how we can trust God in this. We can be assured that God is aware of our situation, no matter how bad it gets, right? And Jesus uses this example. He goes, you can trust. I tell you, fear God, not man, fear him. And he goes on to say, are not five sparrows sold for two pennies? He's assuring us that even five sparrows who literally cost nothing, a few pennies would have been um, two, two sixteenths of a denarii, which was a day's wages. So two sixteenths. There've been like a, maybe an hour's worth of minimal work to buy five sparrows. A few pennies are these sparrows. They, these sparrows are so so numerous and so easily had that they're only worth a couple of pennies. But they do not escape God's care and attention. These sparrows, who were the cheapest thing sold in the ancient market, God cares for insignificant birds, and if He cares for insignificant birds that cost for that cost the money that you sometimes just throw away, right? I actually know people who throw pennies away because they just don't like having pennies around. If God cares for the animals that are worth what we would throw away, how much more does he care for you and me? He knows the number of hairs on our head, which some of ours are less than others. I get that. But it's just saying, he's just reminding us of how intimately he knows us. Some of you he knows much more intimately than others because you have so much more hair. But, just kidding. But God cares for his people more than we could ever hope or imagine. Now, I want to move to this aspect of denying of the blasphemy of the Holy Spirit. I didn't quite know how to fit it well into our outline today, but I do think it needs to be mentioned and looked at. And so as we remember this morning, I want us to remember that we are to fear, we are to not fear. We are to live from the inside out. And as we live from the inside out, what Jesus is acknowledging here in verses 8 through 12 makes sense in terms of what it means for us to be transformed from the inside out. You know Jesus says that, if anyone who acknowledges me before men, the Son of Man will be acknowledged to him before angels, but anyone who denies me before men will be denied before the angels of God. And anyone who speaks a word against the Son of man will be forgiven, but the one who blasphemes against the Holy Spirit will not be forgiven. There's been a lot of confusion over these passages. And I don't know if I can bring full enlightenment this morning, but i at least like us to hopefully give us something to, of understanding in this. To deny is to say to Jesus publicly before God that this danger of hypocrisy that Jesus is talking about it can show itself in denying, in apostasy. We'll see an example of this in the life of Peter, just in a few chapters. No disciple is immune to the fear, to fear and, and hypocritical denial of Jesus. Everyone who speaks a word against a son, Jesus says, but it will be forgiven him. And this kind of seems to contradict, right, what Jesus is saying. He's previously warned them of who denies him will be disowned in eternity, it seems like, but not if it's understood as the one who speaks against the Son is later turned by the Spirit to repentance and faith. And this Spirit can do that if the person is not thwarting God's purpose by blaspheming the Spirit. And what does that mean? What is blasphemy against the Spirit? Well, blasphemy against the Spirit is a conscious, informed rejection And reviling of the Spirit after the Spirit has proved ample provided ample testimony that Jesus is the Christ. As such, this sin is possible only where the gospel has been present and the illuminating rays of the Spirit have been shining. It is saying that the divine Spirit who has been upon John and Jesus, who speaks today through all the Scriptures, revealing the forgiveness of sins provided by Jesus' sacrificial death, is a liar. Of the devil, the father of lies. This would be the sin that Jesus was referring to in the uh, a couple uh, weeks ago in the discourse about Beelzebub. Jesus is explaining what that is. But our faith lives in repentance, and God in Christ is never disloyal. And he welcomes all those who will repent and come to him again. And what this does not mean, this does not mean that, that folks who deny Jesus or who, who blaspheme can't be forgiven. Right? I mean, Paul himself calls himself the greatest blasphemer. Right? He was the one who... Did the most blaspheming, he says, against God. And yet, Christ comes to Paul on the road to Damascus, and Paul repents and turns to Christ. It cannot mean that a disciple who denies Jesus out of fear or out of pressure cannot be forgiven. Because Peter, as I just mentioned, in just a few chapters, is going to do that very thing. He is going to be fearful of his life. And he is going to deny Jesus not once, not twice, but three times. And so it cannot mean that one who has denied Jesus or one who has spoken blasphemy cannot be forgiven. Unfortunately, many Christians have taught that over the years. One who has fallen away and publicly denied Christ can be brought back, can be brought to repentance and faith again, as was Peter. Someone who has blasphemed Christ publicly, like Paul, can be brought to Christ. And in a sense, we are all guilty of speaking against the Son. Since the fall of man, each of us sin daily. All kinds of sins, including those of believing disciples. And in a sense, words are spoken against the Son. All of us stand in need of daily repentance from sin and daily reliance on Jesus' promise to forgive those who have spoken against him. And that promise extends the comfort of salvation to all sinners, to all people, to all who trust his word of promise. Faith lives in repentance. And God in Christ is never disloyal to, to our, or wavering as regards to the promise to forgive for Jesus' sake. Words may be spoken against Christ in ignorance, as Saul did became Paul, or in fear as Peter did. Anyone who has spoken against the Son of Man, against Jesus, can be brought to repentance and faith, even if they were a blasphemer. One who has fallen away and publicly denied Christ can be brought back to repentance and faith again. It is those who, in the end, have denied the work of the Spirit who blaspheme the Holy Spirit. And as I close, I just want to remind us of a lot of misapplication of this passage, not just in what it means to blaspheme the Spirit. but in terms of what it means to acknowledge Christ before men. What is often taught, it often sounds like this, stand up for God. Let me say very clearly, God does not need you or me to stand up for him. God does not need you or me to stand up for him. What Jesus is telling us is that we can and will stand firm in God. God doesn't need you and me running around, defending him, standing up for him, looking for a fight for him, whatever is going on. But what Jesus is saying is that when persecution comes, when we're called to stand firm, we can stand firm in the strength and power of God through the Holy Spirit. We can stand firm because we know how much God cares for us. If he cares for the sparrows whose lives aren't worth a penny, how much more does he care for us? And because of his care, he will not let us go even unto death. Brothers and sisters, fear not. Live from the inside out. Stand firm in Christ and know that God does not need you to stand up for him, but that you can stand firm in the knowledge and love that he has given to each of us. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you and praise you for your word. We thank you for these reminders this day of your care for us, of your strength for us, of a proper fear and knowledge of your love, grace, and mercy in our lives. Lord, I pray you would, by your Spirit, give us the strength to stand. Lord, help us to know and believe in your care for us. We pray all this in Jesus' name. Amen.